This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm ML Clark. Have you ever been caught up in an idea that proved well and truly wrong? Do you remember why? For me, it was in the 2010s, and I let my longing to see something go right for once in the world get the best of me. There was still so much flashy advertising around this idea, too, and from institutions I took seriously. TED Talks, the Nobel Prize. I had friends who were software engineers working at related companies, extolling their pride at having found jobs where they could really make a difference. I read a couple of books on the subject by the man who's considered to have championed this idea's rise, and I was swept away by his passion and sincerity, which to this day I believe were mostly genuine, just misguided. And all it took for me to realize how misguided I'd been was one little seed of doubt. One person pointing out a flaw in the premise of this whole industry, and I was out. It was that easy. With that one little reframe, suddenly I saw everything I'd read and listened to in a very different light, and a whole world of pre-existing criticism of this grand idea opened up to me. It was truly an important moment in my ongoing development of worldly perspective, first because it was a great test of my critical thinking. Could I give up a misguided idea once presented with evidence of its inaccuracy? Absolutely. And what a win that affirmation was, even as my whole worldview had been rocked. But also, second, it was the moment when I started to realize how much deeper many of our problems really ran, and how ill-equipped so many of our best efforts are to address them. And third, the whole experience only increased my empathy for other people swept up in ideas that seemed revolutionary at the time. People like many who have fallen victim to crypto scams, as we'll discuss in episode 5. For all three reasons, I'm truly glad that I spent a few years genuinely, credulously believing that microfinancing, the micro-loan or micro-credit industry, and the idea of social business in general were useful, transformative ideas already changing the world. Even if so much of the initial fervor around these industries has now passed, The businesses themselves continue to control much of our way of thinking about the redistribution of wealth and the path to a more just world. So we absolutely need to talk about and continue to deconstruct the many failings of this approach. And yet, as we talk about these issues, let's never forget that they were popular for a reason, part of which is that many people like me are still so hungry for an example of things going right of meaningful ways to contribute to the creation of a better world, that we will always fall prey to bad ideas under the right packaging. That is a weakness, yes, but it also invites us to imagine ways to turn weakness into strength and to make us all better agents for change over time. And it's that mental flip That moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. 
you're listening to Global Humanist Chop Talk, and for six episodes, we're calculating what humans are worth to one another through a deep dive into global financing, the messy investment structures that simultaneously promise to improve human agency and routinely repeat the same colonial problems from past eras in the process. So let's start not at the beginning, but with the person whose story was for so long presented as the beginning of microloans, Muhammad Yunus, 2006, co-winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in conjunction with his creation, the Grameen Bank. You must have heard many times our goal is something globally we say that repeatedly, the nobody to be left behind. That's a great goal, nobody to be left behind. And we all believe in it. And I try to point out the system that we built around us and we participate in it every day, it is a system which is designed to leave people behind. And that's what the wealth concentration is all about, keeping people behind. So we are struggling against a big machine which is designed to leave people behind, and we are saying we want to do something not to leave anybody behind. That's a big mismatch. The way this champion of microfinance tells the story, microloans began in the 1970s in Bangladesh when Yunus recognized a serious financial need. In 1976, he was the head of the Rural Economics Program at the University of Chittagong, where he launched a research project around the possibility of using a credit delivery system to reach the rural poor, specifically the unbanked men and women who were not considered to have any assets that would make them worthwhile investments for traditional loan programs. Eunice challenged that basic premise. How could anyone think that people who were working hard off the land weren't reliable human beings? Surely the fact that they already lived and died by the fruits of their labor as farmers or in related marketplaces meant that they were strongly incentivized to be responsible with what little they acquired. Eunice especially wanted to improve the lives of women from these low-income households as a demographic that had been excluded from modern wealth systems for sexist reasons under the law as well as by the fact of their birth into systemic poverty. For all these lofty reasons, he started the Grameen Bank Project. Grameen meaning rural or village in Bangla. A program sponsored by the central bank in that country, which went into poor Bangladesh districts in the late 1970s and early 1980s, providing not only microloans to local citizens, but also a collaborative learning model that helped women especially gain key financial education and kept the community self-regulating with respect to paying back those loans with the fruits of their industry. And the program was at first a success, with resoundingly high 98% collection rates proving to the world that yes, people in poverty were sound investments and could be expected to repay their loans just as much, if not more, than anyone who was born into better circumstances and had plenty of assets to lean on when asking their own banks for a loan. On the back of that success, Eunice went on to champion what he called social business enterprise, a way of rethinking corporate practice to advocate against profit-driven enterprise and toward reinvesting any gains one's company made in further expansion to serve more of the original community in need. 
His most famous example of this involved a locally developed yogurt factory that reflected his idea that poor women, when empowered as entrepreneurs, could change the world. The yogurt factory in question paired with Danone to deliver a high nutrient-packed product to feed the country's malnourished children, but with explicit contracts that refused any profit to Danone for its participation. The idea was that major companies could absolutely make back their original investment, but no more. Everything else the companies produced was intended to be recycled into the local economy to expand these factories and the reach of their much-needed products. Can you see now why I was so excited by this man and his ideas when I first came across them? Micro-credit-funded businesses with non-profit models, not seeking revenue for their investors but returning all gains to the communities they more immediately served, sounded to a younger me like the perfect solution within our capitalist systems. It was a strategy for alleviating poverty that leveraged all the existing infrastructure we already had in place and required very little reframing of current operating principles in order to maximize its contribution to human welfare. So what could possibly go wrong? The funny thing, though, is that when I realized what had indeed gone wrong with this grand idea, I also realized that I'd seen it before, when first getting super excited by the idea of fair trade goods. I touched on this industry a little in my season one episode on the quinoa craze, when I reflected on how Westerners patted themselves on the back while buying up this supposed superfood because they'd also been fed a story about how quinoa's entry into the global market was giving poor farmers in places like Bolivia a real chance to benefit from the world's economy and uplift themselves in the process. Who doesn't love a feel-good story like that, right? But after I realized what had gone wrong with microfinancing, I immediately flashed back to early classes in political science, when in one course we watched a video and dealt with discourse around the failings of the fair trade market. In particular, around how fair trade practices required rural farmers to adopt more legal restrictions and more paperwork than they ever had before. How suddenly, in order to become a certified vendor in these programs, you might need to formalize your relationship to the land you were working on and how in many rural communities, this meant vastly transforming how they thought about ownership of the land and introducing rigid Western notions of territory and borders that caused new problems for the workers and their families. The problem with microfinancing turned out to run parallel to this issue. Onboarding all these poor communities into traditional banking networks meant that traditional banking networks were also suddenly at their doors too. Do you think only altruistic credit unions would take interest in Eunice's project, especially as it gained so much worldly acclaim? Of course not. And so very quickly, Eunice found himself struggling with boards and competing microcredit projects that did not have social mobility first and foremost in mind. They'd seen that a whole new client base could be created among these poor demographics and then squeezed for everything they had what little they had. And these investors dove in. Profit-oriented lending schemes led to the obvious end result of exploitative loaning practices with high interest rates and extreme pressure tactics that essentially created a new form of indentured servitude for the poor households that had made the mistake of believing the pitch first given to them that with a little money on loan, they could change their lives. 
Obviously, too, in the background of these rising predatory microfinancing operations was also the impact of our changing environment. Agrarian crises, long droughts, and the general uncertainty of employment that goes with them made it even easier for the low-income clients of these services to fall deep into debt spirals, sometimes taking out more debt to try to hold off their original creditors. And the best part of all? When local politicians rightly protested the unjust pressure and predation of these infiltrating banks and credit unions, that highly acclaimed return rate of 98% dropped almost overnight to less than 10%. And why? Not because these impoverished human beings were any less reliable, but because they are human beings, pushed to a breaking point. If people are given a reason to hope, and dignity in the process, they will surprise you with their responsibility. But take away that hope, take away that dignity, and the confidence game of modern finance as a promised pathway to a better life falls apart. They walk away. Quite a few excellent books have deconstructed the fall of microfinancing, including Andhra Pradesh's 2010 Poverty Capital, which highlights how Eunice's good idea quickly ran afoul of the harsh real world full of exploitative commercial actors who were eager to hop onto the feel-good bandwagon of helping the world's poor and then suck them dry. But I also shouldn't speak just in the past tense because even well after the release of her book and the rise of related criticism, those markets just kept on growing, supported in no small part by the World Bank, which as we discussed in episode four, strongly prioritizes business-driven solutions to the impoverished state of many nations in the world. Digital lending has also made it easier than ever for these predatory companies to onboard and squeeze value out of new clients. In 2019, Kevin P. Donovan and Emma Park reported on this crisis as it played out in Kenya in an article for the Boston Review titled Perpetual Debt in the Silicon Savannah. The effects of what's called fintech, financial technologies, on the Kenyan economy has been brutal. Small loans with huge annualized interest rates driving local violence, domestic disruption, and suicide as borrowers juggle repayment across different lending platforms and dodge creditors wherever they can. But in that digital lending trap, as the authors note, and as Yunus originally noted in his 1970s experiments with the poor in Bangladesh, is also an explanation as to why these new predatory practices so deeply underserve their users. We are not new to debt as human beings. We have always been lending and borrowing from one another in our local communities. The difference is when that sense of community is stripped from the equation. In the best formations of the Grameen Bank project, the real wealth did not just lie in the microloans made available to those suffering in systemic poverty. It lay with one's inclusion into a circle of fellow entrepreneurs and community resources, people you could talk to and learn from and who were with you every step of the way in achieving your financial goals and repaying your original balance. The digital lending trap that now plagues huge parts of the world, including many African nations, is a nightmare of increased inclusion only into rigid legal systems which accumulate user data and commodify one's identity under a financial metric that will be used against you when pursuing other legal aid or social mobility until you've paid back your original and sometimes overwhelming debt. 
The techno-capitalists running these ventures aren't interested in uplift. They just see a potentially lucrative market and an easy way to pull profit from a desperate community right up until that community has had enough and breaks away or apart. Which brings us to the bigger, bleaker picture. The reminder that these digital lending practices are not indicative of a new problem. Rather, they're a very old problem in a shiny new form. Similarly, Eunice was not the first to come up with the microcredit model as a host of deeper history texts abundantly illustrate. In Joanne Meyerowitz's 2021 A War on Global Poverty, The Lost Promise of Redistribution and the Rise of Microcredit, and Nick Bernard's A Critical History of Poverty Finance, Colonial Roots and Neoliberal Failures, microcredit on a global scale is illustrated as just the latest in a long series of tactics for managing poverty that both controls labor among the poor and also coaxes investors to put their money into what essentially amounts to a tacit expansion of capitalism into new markets. Most devastating of all, however, is the fact that another approach was possible. And until the 1970s with the rise of neoliberalism, it was even being widely advocated for on the world stage. Then in the 1970s, there was a huge shift toward focusing on what many called the basic needs of the world's poor. And Eunice, for all his best intentions, was definitely part of that movement. But we could also have continued to discuss redistributive politics, not charity, not lending with strings attached, not market expansion first and equal representation after, but a direct recentering of wealth and representation without all these elaborate traps. Meyerowitz's book is especially grim on this accord because it's so easy for us to nod along and say, ah, yes, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan ruined so much when they empowered the marketplace above and beyond social welfare and state-driven solutions. But what she argues is worse, that a whole class of feel-good liberals and leftists endorsed this turn from pushing for independence and self-governance among the world's poor toward these superficially charitable models of modern industry in which we now tie up as many impoverished human beings as we can in financial systems that provide no real sense of community, but which definitely dangle just enough hope of a better material existence to ensnare the world's most desperate populations in a debt trap with no end. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with M.L. Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter, at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.